You know where we left off, Judges chapter 10. And put your finger there, I'll eventually get there. Now, Father, we always like to bow our hearts before you and just ask for a measure of grace, the hearing of your word and the preaching and teaching of your word and the receiving of it and to put it into practice. We need your help, Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, of course, we're walking through the book of Judges during Israel's very dark history before the period of the kings. As you well remember, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and they're paying a dear price for doing that. Self-rule is very foolish and always ends in disaster. Now, God the Father is faithfully bringing discipline to his erring children. Every time they get off track in love, he brings down the paddle. He allows the consequences of their poor choices to be fully realized in their life so that they will come back to him. Uh, we read the verse out of Proverbs 3, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, a lot of people think that's a New Testament idea, but uh, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting Proverbs 3, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And he delights in them, and they also are receiving painful discipline that usually takes the form of the surrounding pagan peoples who, by the way, they were supposed to have driven completely out. And so these are the enemies of God and his people who, through God's allowance and sovereign hand, he allows them to fiercely rise up and get the upper hand and oppress his people until they cry, uncle. And as soon as they cry, not uncle, but father, he comes to the rescue. So um, eventually there's enough pain and distress to bring repentance and prayer and uh, God would bring that deliverance to them through a shaphat in the Hebrew, a judge or a rescuer or deliverer. So the last time we spoke, we were in chapter 9, finishing up a miserable chapter, not just because it was so long, but because of the king Abimelech, who was the front and center uh, stage uh, subject of that chapter. Um, Israel needed rescue from him. He was really a judge, but he was self-appointed. He was a self-appointed judge. He was ruthless. It was King Abimelech, as you will recall. Uh, it was uh, Gideon's self-absorbed, self-appointed, megalomaniac son. A megalomaniac is somebody who suffers with psychotic delusions of omnipotence or power and wealth, and King Abimelech was that. But as Peter reminded us on Sunday, that false leaders, false teachers, and evildoers will be paid back for the harm that they have done. And so Proverbs 26, 27 came to pass at the close of chapter 9, to give you some context for chapter 10, King Abimelech, the wide-eyed crazy man who would execute his brothers to, uh, to keep them from rivaling his throne, um, 
the proverb says, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. In wicked and Abimelech's case, the stone didn't roll back on him. It was hurled down upon him out of a window by a woman who found a more excellent use of her millstone. Instead of heads of grain, it was heads of felons. And so Abimelech fell never to rise again, except, of course, when the wicked dead are resurrected at the end of a thousand-year reign called the Millennial Kingdom, he will sit on a great white throne, and every wicked soul that part departed this earth without saving faith in God from Cain to the tribulation will rise on that day and stand before God and give an account. That is Revelation chapter 20, and I throw that in for free. Now, closing out chapter 9 last week, uh, last verses, then God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. So we close the books out with Abimelech um, being repaid. Uh, so the point of this is that either we pay or he pays, but payment will be required. Now, with the evil judge removed from power, the evildoers have been dealt with. Uh, Israel is free, but still reeling in the aftermath of a terrible dictator's rule. Chapter 10, verse 1. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, no laughter. <laughs> Poor Dodo. <laughs> Dodo and, Dor and Dorcas in the New Testament. <laughs> Rose to save Israel. So you get three generations there of Tola's ancestry there. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years and then died and was buried in Shamir. All right, Roman numeral number one. A steady hand. Now, Tola is the second of a minor judge. The minor judges, there are six of them. Uh, the first one that you encountered was back in chapter three, that was Shamgar. Remember, he was pretty good with the ox goat and he, and he killed 600 Philistines, and it, that was it. It was one sentence. Uh, they're called minor judges because, not because they're less significant, but because there's less information about them. Just like the 12 books in the Old Testament called minor prophets, they're not minor uh, in significance. They're minor because they're smaller prophetic messages. And so this is the second minor uh, prophet that we're going to meet, two, uh, judge rather, we're going to meet two men also in this chapter, uh, so Tola and Jair, and then in chapter 12, there are three more, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And so these are the minor judges. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound a little odd to you, but um, this judge, Tola, is one of my favorite judges of all. And um, Jordan, there's a little bit of a feedback that's kind of bothering me, so if you could... One of those 
humming devices. You could just get a small flamethrower and bring it forward and just open fire. I'll let you guys figure it out. All right, and so a steady hand, this judge, uh, why I like him so much is you really don't need a lot of fanfare to be a hero. He saves Israel, your text says. He rises up. There's only two verses uh, to his name. He rises up and he saves Israel from the disaster that he inherits because of this past judge, Abimelech. And so while Abimelech may be gone, he's left a big mess, a bloody mess. And Israel needs somebody who's just a steady Eddie, who is... Uh, comes in and he has deep stability that's built through a steady hand, a calm and even keeled disposition, and a day-to-day -day wise faithfulness. And that's the stuff of, of real heroes. Now, um, moving on, verses 3 now. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jair. Havoth just means settlements. When Jair died, he was buried in Camon. All right, so Roman numeral number two, a self-centered life. Now, this minor judge is really a minor judge, because his life is not really about building God's kingdom or saving Israel, but it's about building a power base for him and his boys, all right? So the few verses that we do have about this minor judge tells us that Jair was a polygamous man, a man of wealth and prestige. His many sons had fancy transportation and their own territory to rule uh, Jair never took the title king, but it seems like he was acting like one. Deuteronomy 17 already said, look, if there are going to be future kings, make sure that they don't uh, uh, take many wives, amass great wealth. It's not our job to build up our kingdoms. If God wants to bless us, he blesses us. But our job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he adds as he sees fit. And so um, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It just kind of sets our sights straight on where we should be uh, aiming. And so, you know, I just think, you know, he got a town named after him. You know, that's what it says there. Actually, there are 30 little towns. It's kind of like Cotting Town, you know. Uh, he, he, it's Jair Town, okay? And that's what exactly what it is. And he's got 30 donkeys for 30 sons with 30 towns. How nice. And then he died. That's what it says there. A great conversation starter in heaven. When one of the saints of old goes by and says, hey, wow. How was it down there for you? What happened with you? You know, and he says, well, got a town named after me. And I had 30 boys, and they all had dirty donkeys. 
and each a donkey, and they each had a town, and then can you see the angel or the saint of God going, interesting. (laughs) I would rather be able to say, you know, I supported 30 kids in an orphanage, or uh, I spent 30 years serving in a church, or I impacted 30 people with the gospel. Let's say I had 30 little cars, fancy cars is what a donkey is. Is that, wow, not everybody had a donkey. And not everybody had 30 sons, and he had to have concubines in order to have that many sons and all of that. And so, you know what? I'd rather get to heaven and, and talk about what the Lord did through me to advance his kingdom. And that's really what it's all about. Verses 6 through 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So when you see that sentence in Judges, it begins another sin cycle. There are seven of them thus far. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the god of Aram and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead and the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites called out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. All right. Roman numeral number three, an unfaithful people. So a steady hand, a self-centered life, and an unfaithful people. So 45 years of peace under Tola and Jair, And now, no gratitude for that. They get soft with the blessing. There's no drama. There's only blessing and and peace. And so they get soft. And then they decide, well, maybe I can push the envelope now and do my own thing. After all, God is for us. Who could be against us? And so they start kind of pushing to the edge and the outer limits of obedience and intermingling with the pagan cultures and all of that. And now we're going to get introduced to a major judge, Jephthah, but first we need to find out how they got in their predicament in the first place, and that's what this opening paragraph serves. Uh, Verse 6, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you know what? Those are the only eyes that really matter because it says judges is a time when man and woman just do what seems right in their own eyes, and it's a disaster. But the Lord looked out and said, what you're doing right in your own eyes, in my eyes, is evil. Those are the only eyes that matter. It doesn't matter what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco legislates or overturns. It really doesn't. You can take a vote. You could take a vote in California. It just doesn't matter one way or the other or in the nation or the United Nations. We all think this is the way it should be. 
What does the eyes of the Lord think? The eyes of the Lord. <laughs> that's the only thing that's going to matter. And the Lord says, it's evil. So in verse 6, it's time to meet the rivals, the pretty young things, the mistresses with whom Israel cheats on Yahweh. So Jeremiah 3 and Hosea 4 talks about uh, Israel's unfaithfulness uh, and uses the metaphor of an adulteress when they go uh, after these other pagan gods. And so it reminds me of that song Hank Williams wrote in the 50s, uh, Your Cheating Heart. And, and listen, I mean, here, they've been cheating. You're, you're going to meet them. He names them. And then they're going to cry out because their lovers have done them wrong. And they can't live with themselves, and now they're crying out. You know, your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell on you. When tears come down like falling rain, you'll toss around and call my name. It's right there in verse 9. <clears throat> you'll walk the floor the way I do. Your cheating heart will tell on you. Your cheating heart will pine someday and crave the love you threw away, verse 8. <laughs> <laughs> when you'll be blue, your cheating heart will tell on you. When tears come down like fallen rain, you'll toss around and call my name. You'll walk the floor the way I do. Your cheating heart will tell on you. Just perfect. Was Hank thinking of this passage? Uh, <laughs> So, okay, are you ready? Down the fashion runway come the seven uh, deadly seven. All right, here they come. Representing the uh, Baal is Miss Hittite. And then we've got Miss Girgashite because they worship the Asteris. And then we've got Miss Aram. And we've got Miss Sidon. And we've got Miss Moab. Are you picturing what I'm picturing? That's what I picture. Here they come. The Lord wants you to know these are the ones you left me for. And they're coming down with their haughty faces and their puffed up things and their hair all over the place. And, you know, their swagger and down they come. And as it is so often the case for all of us, Israel is taken down by the immoral things it gives itself to. The people and things we're so enamored with are often our undoing. Verse 8 says, and they crushed them. Now, Joshua's last words before he died, he gathered Israel and he says, but if you turn away, speaking the Lord through him, but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations, that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them and their gods, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 
28 says, A people that you do not know will eat what your land and your labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all the days of your life in the day that you forsake the Lord your God. God's people do not sin and go astray for lack of knowledge. And if they were schooled, how much more we with the presence of the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years of church history. It's amazing. But he warns us. He says, these lovers of yours, they're going to take you down and they're going to crush you. The very thing that you're so enamored with. Oh, so we're going to see. Bad company has corrupted good morals. That's from 1 Corinthians 15. They've grieved the Lord. They've instigated his discipline. Uh, and Yahweh, verse 7, sells them. It just means, look, he's made a transaction in his own mind. I'm kind of uh, foregoing my right as owning them. I'm giving that up and over temporarily. You know, you guys, here you go. Have at it. Uh, there's the stove. It's hot. You've been burned before, but you really got this thing about the stove. Go ahead and touch it. I mean, if that's what's obsessing in your heart and life, just keep doing it. Now, for us, the Canaanites, as we have discussed, really stands for um, the, the pagan world around us with its worldly influence, spiritual warfare, uh, temptation, and most importantly, the land that needs to be conquered is our own hearts. The Girgashites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the parasites, all of those ites are living within the sinful heart, and we need to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. For if you let them live, you surely will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will surely live. A new Testament directive to God's people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. That's Paul talking to Corinth. But do you remember? He's taking those passages out of the Old Testament. Those are Old Testament truths to come out and be separate from the world or suffer. One of my favorite lines in the Old Testament is from Jonah. He said it with seaweed wrapped around his head inside the belly of a beast. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So Israel is forfeiting some grace. They are shedding some tears, though. And so the text says after 18, 18 years, it could have been 18 seconds. It could have been 18 days or 18 weeks, but they wait. Maybe this is going to pay off somehow. Maybe I can have a relationship with God and keep my little uh, lovers on the side. 18 years of chaos and pain and distress, and finally they're ready. And they come crying out, but apparently the all-knowing God detects a little insincerity, um, perhaps some alligator tears. They say, we have sinned against you. And then somebody says, sob, sob. And then they sob a little bit. You know, please forgive us. And now it's God's turn. Verse 11 through 16. 
The Lord replied, all right, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, so he's going to name the runway girls, all right? When the Egyptians, the Amorites, Miss Ammonite, Miss Philistine, and Miss Sidonian, and Miss Malachite, and Miss Mororite, when they oppressed you and you cried for help in the past, didn't I save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. <laughs> then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer, Roman numeral number, for a wonderful counselor. God's pretty smart. So he, first of all, I want to say, when God cops an attitude with you, things are very serious, right? Because he's saying to them with humor and sarcasm, uh, excuse me, but perhaps maybe you want to call the gods that you are so enamored with right now. You're in trouble. Why don't you call Baal? You know, so when God is doing that, that's a sign that things are not going well. Uh, God got a spiritual thermometer under Israel's tongue and notices that they're not spiritually all the way cooked through. With resolve, there's pink in the middle. There's a little conviction uh, of their sin, but it's not all the way. It's too rare inside. So he turns up the heat. He pushes them back a little bit, closes the door a little bit until they're the right consistency. So they need more time in the oven. And God knows. Just because they have the right words, they said all the right words. God, we have sinned. We forsook you for other gods. Please save us. And the Lord says, you know what? Call Baal. I've got his number. 1-800-DESTRUCTION. <laughs> all right, just give him a call. And maybe he'll pick up for you. All right, so commentator Block says this. Yahweh, through divine humor and sarcasm, demonstrates the purely utilitarian and manipulative nature of their cry. In other words, it's not about coming back to God so much as it is getting out of trouble. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am tired of being your Baal's bondsman. Nobody wants a relationship or a friendship with a Baal bondsman. Really, you're calling for one thing only. You don't want to have coffee with the guy. You don't care about him. You don't want to be in a friendship. You want the money. Give me the money so I can get out of jail. He says, you know what? I'm a little tired of this. This is not a healthy relationship. I do not want to perpetuate in your mind that that's what relationship with God is all about. Are you kidding me? 911 operator, Yahweh's speaking. What's the nature of your emergency this time? <laughs> the Lord says, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with that. What do you guys think about that? Now, I imagine the high priest, because I think they're communicating <laughs> through the high priest or a prophet. So they're all gathering. They got sackcloth on. They're weeping. 
Tell him we've offered this to him. Please, we're so sorry. And the high priest is like, hold on. Come again, Lord? The Lord's saying, you know, no, I'm not going to help them. Tell them to call Mrs. Ashtoreth. Tell them to call the Hittite gods. So he's like, uh, hold on. Lord, really? Honestly? And so they're waiting, and the high priest looks at and says, no. He said, call Baal. So they take this to heart. There's apparently some time between 14 and verse 15. And here comes a more suitable request. Now verse 15. There's surrender and acceptance accompanied by deeds of repentance. I love this new approach. Let me paraphrase. Verse 15. Okay, Lord, we've sinned. We deserve whatever comes of this. Do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. I love the, but please rescue us now. Here's what they're saying. All right, we get it. You're not very happy. We've been down this road before. You think we're faking. Uh, we probably were. And, and, and here's what we want to say. We know our deliverance is now your prerogative. We'll serve you on your terms, with or without a rescue, but we would prefer an immediate rescue. That's exactly what they're saying. And here's proof that the pink is done. The, th the, the thermometer is reached well done. And here's how you know. There are actions. There's actions. There's deeds that validate words because talk is cheap. Oh, we have sinned. Oh, Lord, please save us. Yeah, right. No, not this time. Oh, OK. So now we have a better attitude, and now look what they do. They run around, and they start to tear down the altars. They get rid of the foreign gods among them and, and serve the Lord. <laughs> that, that's really, really important. Show me. Don't just tell me. Our behavior is a greater indicator of what we really believe and how we're doing with the Lord than any of our words. John. The apostle, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, I'm so tired of hearing from people who are either backslidden Christians who do not know the Lord at all. Oh, I know the Lord. And then live an immoral lifestyle. Jesus Christ fixed that permanently when he said, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. Over and over again, he says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And so verse 16, they get rid of the foreign gods among them and begin serving the Lord. I want you to see something very important that a lot of Christians miss. It's a wonderful teaching right here. It's never just what you stop doing. It's what you take away and what you add, what you start doing. So, I mean, think of it the way we always think about dieting. is just cutting out the junk food, except we forget about adding the healthy lifestyle. In true repentance, 
There's both. Listen, you're subtracting, you're taking something away, usually. You're stopping a behavior, and that's where you make a mistake and stop. In this case, right in this verse, they take it away and they serve the Lord. Add and subtract. All right, let me give you some examples. The porn gets put down and the Bible gets picked up. I'm sorry, but just putting down the porn is not enough. It will do you no good if you do not replace the vacuum and with something in it. Nature abhors a, ba uh, a vacuum. I was going to say a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Empty is bad. And that's the problem. Oh, a lot of people define their Christian living by what you don't do. I'm so happy for you that you don't drink and cuss or go with those who do or whatever it is, your little limerick of, oh, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. You know, join the club with a nice moral Buddhist. They don't do it either. A lot of people live moral lives, but they're missing. They cut out the vice, but they don't fill up with the virtue. And the only place you're going to find virtue is being filled with the Holy Spirit. The liquor bottle's emptied. Your heart is filled with a different kind of spirit. The money is returned. The offerings are given. The sinful relationship is ended. New Christian fellowship has started. The slander and gossip and cursing stops. The praising, encouraging, and blessing begins. We die to our sins. We live to the Lord. We say no to us. We say yes to him. We resist the devil and submit to God. Even, I mean, you find this everywhere. I hope you get it. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. It's everywhere. You know, well, I've stopped stealing. I don't steal anymore. Well, what about now working, finding something to share with others? See, don't stop short. It takes both. And then it says here, beautiful words, that the, law, the Lord lost his patience watching them suffer. The Hebrew says, and his soul became short. It means he grew impatient watching them suffer. He lost his patience. It's just a beautiful way to say he's watching them suffer, and then he lost his patience in a beautiful way. He said, I can't take it anymore. And he explodes with, Oh, those, all of those ites, they're not going to be doing all right. <laughs> they are going to go down, and the Lord is going to defend his people. Why? Because the, the, it's a winning combination. Acceptance, surrender, deeds of repentance together. Faith without deeds is dead. And so Nehemiah 9.31, to close out the chapter, we'll pick up the next verse, but I love this. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to your erring people or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And so when God sees that, okay, they've learned their lesson, the 
The oven timer has gone off. Do not mess with his people. Because he's accomplished in them the character, the faith, the resolve, the conviction. He's melted away the impurity. And now he's going to take a stand for them. A winning combination. So reflections from tonight's chapter for me. These are mine. I share them with you. One, quiet, unassuming faithfulness is heroic in God's book. Number two, building God's kingdom instead of my own will play better in the end. Three, be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Number four, surrender and acceptance accompanied with deeds of repentance brings restoration and blessing. Number five, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. It's very encouraging. God, we find ourselves in this chapter in various places. May your truth go deep into our hearts and light our path. Keep us by your power. You are ever gracious, ever kind, ever merciful. We are so grateful to know you and to be covered. The blood of Christ, the grace of God surrounding us, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.